Google's site reliability engineers are responsible for maintaining the highly available services that power the Google software that we all use on a regular basis. O'Reilly recently published the book Site Reliability Engineering, How Google Runs Production Systems, and the book provides a comprehensive window into how the site reliability engineering role at Google works. Todd Underwood is a director of site reliability engineering. On today's episode, Todd explains how the role of SRE relates to DevOps. We've had many shows about DevOps on Software Engineering Daily. Todd and I discuss the relationship between the engineers who are developing Google services and the SREs who are maintaining those services. Google's internal data operating system, sorry, data center operating system called Borg is also discussed, and we have some comparisons between Borg and Kubernetes. Todd Underwood is a site reliability director at Google. Today we are discussing the book Site Reliability Engineering. Todd, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much for having me. Good to meet you. Let's start by talking about the past. 20 years ago, the people in charge of our servers would be referred to as sysadmins, and this term gets used less often today. What was the sysadmin approach to server management? I mean, I think even before that, there were there were operators or systems operators, right, back in the mainframe days of computing. Um, yeah, so there used to be a very, very robust and interesting operations culture, which was good in many ways, but also limiting in some other ways. And I think that, you know, and many of us who are SREs now who are a little bit on the older side, I don't want to date myself too much, but uh, many of us grew up in that culture. And there were some really great things about the approach um, that came out of that. I think there was a respect for reliability and failure. There was a respect for users. There was a respect for developers and the complexity of deploying systems and software. But there were also some limitations in the form of, uh, you know, many of us didn't have the kinds of software background or the kind of software approach at the time that would lead us to better automate our jobs or think outside of the kind of problems that we uh, that we found ourselves in. Mm. So I think, you know, from my perspective, the the sysadmins approach that we had, you know, going back to the 80s and 90s and early 2000s was really this approach of, you know, uh, for mostly, you know, Unix computers, but also uh, Windows computers, just, you know, professionally administer the system, take the backups, install the operating system, configure the users and services. And um, when when there were a small number of very complicated machines, that was great. But as soon as we started to get to, you know, very complex networks of services where there wasn't really a machine, but there were just a whole lot of machines doing a whole lot of different things, uh, the task of systems administration got uh, significantly more complex. Mm. It sounds like a large factor in the evolution of how server management has been conducted is the decrease in manual intervention and the increase in automation. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's true, but I think that it also comes from, yes, that's true. In the context that we live in, um, the task that we have is a thousand or 10,000 times the scale it used to be, you know, just to give some specific numbers, um, it used to be very common for, to have a ratio of, you know, 10 servers per sysadmin. And, you know, some of the giants of the industry would have up to a hundred servers per sysadmin because they had standardized everything and made it so cookie cutter. And, and as you say, automated many of the processes. Um, now the whole idea that you would have, you know, fewer than a thousand or ten thousand physical machines per operation staff at a big place is unfathomable, right? Like that's just not how we roll. Like everybody is operating at a much, much larger scale. And part of that's great. Like this is part of the democratization of computing. Right. We are by lowering the cost and increasing the scale, we are making 
super interesting, really sophisticated services available to everyone, right? Like you can use Snapchat because somebody is administering a complex online application that moves pictures around. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Like the idea that we would have that 20 years ago was, you know, science fiction and now it's run of the mill. So yes, I think it's about automation. And I think that the automation is driven by the increase in scale that's going on. Mm. The sysadmin role at many companies has evolved over the years to terms like ops or DevOps. And, you know, on a parallel track of evolution, the site reliability engineer role has developed at Google. And one quote from the SRE book is that one could view the SRE role, the site reliability engineer role, as a specific implementation of DevOps with some idiosyncratic extensions. So I'm curious what you think the has been the precipitating environmental changes that have led to the broader development community moving towards this DevOps mentality and how that relates to Google and what are the idiosyncratic extensions that Google applies to that DevOps mentality? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I think that... I, I like the part of the question in particular where you focus on what was the motivation for DevOps at all? What is the, there's some problem being solved. There's some circumstance that needs to be addressed. Um, I, I think DevOps is a wonderful, wonderful cultural reaction to the division between development staff, you know, software developers writing applications, uh, the operations staff, and also the networking and security staff. Many of us have worked at places where the system staff, the networking staff, the security staff don't talk to each other, much less any of them talk to developers. And so the core idea behind DevOps was that those very, very different groups would uh, collaborate, would actually talk to each other, um, which is fantastic, right? Because we all know things like uh, a security problem is easier fixed in the design of an application than it is fixed by trying to tack on some sophisticated intrusion detection or firewall rules later in the process. It's just much harder if you've if you haven't done the homework ahead of time. Um, and so DevOps is an approach that tries to address that. At Google, things evolved fairly differently. Um, Google was, uh, uh, I've been uh, encouraged not to say cheap, so I'm supposed to say frugal. But in its early days, Google was extremely frugal, but also extremely ambitious. So when you go back to, and I'm talking early, you know, 2001, two, three, very early days, um, the search wars were hot. We were all, you know, jumping around between AltaVista and Dogpile, and you know, pe some people are using Hotbot, and some people are using Lycos, and some people started using this Google thing. And um, it was very, very important that they move fast, but they also thought that they were going to get very, very big. And to compete in the search space, you had to basically download the web index it, rank it, and serve results from it. I mean, this is this is a pretty challenging thing to do even when the web was small. And so they just didn't think that they could afford um, to have a separate operations staff. So they left most of the what we think of as production or operations duties with the same software engineers who were building the application. And I think what's fascinating about that is um, those software engineers didn't like most of the repetitive work that was called for, you know, in terms of install the operating system, you know, compile the code, test the code, push the code to the new recently installed operating systems. And so they started building infrastructure to do all of that automatically. And that's really the people who were good at building that infrastructure to run production automatically. Those were the first SREs. Mm. Um, so I think the the one of the differences that you'll find in terms of the idiosyncratic differences between uh, Google and some other places is that uh, we don't really have an incredibly separate um, – we don't have an operations division to run production. We have software engineers whose job it is to build new applications and build new features into existing applications. 
uh, and build new infrastructure software. And then we have systems and software engineers in the SRE division who are also engineers. They're not operations staff whose job it is to ensure that all of that works reliably. But we don't really have people whose job is to just operate, to to as reliably as possible run the stuff that we have. So, um, so as I'm trying to understand or articulate what the SRE role is, what the exactly the responsibilities are, I think about this this interview that we did a while ago with one of the guys who worked on the original Hadoop system and he was talking about how when the I think it was the big table paper got published, one of the big breakthroughs in the big table paper was just the idea that Google was built with these, you know, over time they they started to build with commodity, just commodity hardware, and they just would expect things to fail. They would expect, you know, some some rate of failure, of hardware failure, of of you know, some piece of the system is going to fail with a certain probability, and they just built it into their processes that on a regular basis, this stuff is going to fail, it's going to break, but these are hardware failures. Um, and so, what I'm curious about is how. You know who who is responsible who is responsible for the hardware failures in a data center because there are so many of them and to what degree does that get segmented from what kinds of failures an SRE is dealing with? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, so we treat the processes that we run our business, including the uh, hardware and and the data centers, um, with the same approach that we treat the external applications. So um, there is hardware in the data centers and the hardware fails. When the hardware fails, there's a whole division of the company called the uh, hardware operations division. And those folks, and there's a there's several of them in each data center. They're physically located in the data center. You know, go uh, find and replace the individual servers that are broken. But I think two things are interesting. One is um, we have a, an SRE team who's responsible for maintaining the software systems that tell those HWAPs, as they're called, staff what machines are broken and what to do to them. Um, and the second thing I think is interesting is it, you're really – it's deeply baked into our engineering culture that you can't build an important application that assumes that servers don't fail or that you know remote procedure calls all succeed or that you know networks never get congested or drop packets because all those things happen. And so what we look at when we're looking at a new application or new infrastructure, especially new software infrastructure, something like a, a storage system or something like a, you know, a lookup, a key value pair lookup system, something that could be at the core of an important application, um, what we look at is uh, what are the distribution of failures that we expect to see, uh, and how does this system deal with those failures? So if it's a system that runs on a 1,000 machines, what's the probability that all 1,000 of those machines are going to all be functioning perfectly for a full day? Well, I mean, there is a probability. It's not zero, but it's not 100%. You know, if all of the machines have to talk to every single one of the other machines to do anything, then that's a badly designed application because something will break down there. So um, I think what we've tried to do is build into the culture of engineering here that, as you say, like those those commodity uh, hardware boxes, they just they fail and and even even if you build incredibly reliable hardware once you get 500,000 of them or a million of them they fail too right nothing nothing works perfectly all the time and so we just need to think about how do we design at higher levels of abstraction some resiliency to deal with those kinds of failures so as you've kind of said the the, the SRE is not it's site reliability engineer We've kind of touched on what it is not. It is not the person that is running around in the data center replacing pieces of hardware. The SRE is this layer of engineering between the people who are writing the software services and the people who are actually uh, handling hardware failures. Um, it is it's this this layer between. I you could tell tell me if that's accurate, and I guess. Give a definition for what an SRE is and what the responsibilities of an SRE are. Yeah, I, I think actually layer between is an interesting way of thinking about it. I don't think that's wrong at all. Um, SREs are at our core constructive cynics. So, you know, we've all, all of us who have worked in technology have worked with that one negative person who's always convinced everything's going to fail, everything's going to break, right? We all know that person. 
Um, but well, that's two- like the entire field of distributed systems. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Like everything's going to fail. But see, and this is what's interesting about distributed systems. Interesting about distributed systems, though, is that instead of saying it's all going to fail, oh well, they say it's all going to fail. I wonder how we could design <laughs> a distributed consensus protocol, assuming all of it could fail. And you get Paxos out of that, right? And you get Raft out of that. That's amazing, right? Yeah. So there's two variants, I think, of that of that cynic. There's the unconstructive cynic who's like everything is terrible and that's it they just say everything is terrible and they're done and then there's the constructive cynic and the constructive cynic looks at your application and says hey you know this thing you built it's really broken and it's not gonna work and let me tell you why right and it's the why part that is the part that i like to focus on um all of the software in the world is pretty terrible lots of the time, right? Like it's just, it happens for sure that all software breaks. Um, but the question is, can you be the person who can say why it's going to break and how it's going to break and then maybe devise a way of mitigating that? So mm-hmm. that's what SREs are. We, uh, you know, we talk to, we talk with uh um, design teams and development teams who are working on new applications and changes to existing applications. We work closely with them from the early days. You know, what is the structured storage system you're going to use? Like, how are you going to deploy this? Um, where, you know, how do you send messages? How do you store? What happens if this part of your this box in your system design? breaks what happens if these data files get corrupted and we you know it's our job to think through all of the failure modes and then help build a system that can still be written in reasonable amounts of time and can do what it needs to do but can do it more reliably Mm -hmm. so one of the breakthroughs that we've had in or maybe it's not a breakthrough i don't know but it's one of the things that has become iconic in software development over the past 10 or 20 years is this service-oriented architecture or microservices architecture where you have these planet-scale systems that are built out of what we call services. And services interact with each other, they build on each other, and a certain team might be responsible for a service. And these services are like the building blocks of a company. And so so an SRE might be responsible for managing a particular service or or interfacing with the development team that is responsible for a service. And I want to talk about the architecture process of a service and the management process of a service. And I want to do that by first like talking through a couple quotes. Um, so one quote that I read in the book is, eventually a traditional ops-focused group scales linearly with service size. So this is kind of touching on one p- potential problem that you can have if you if you architect your ops team in, in a traditional way. Could you explain this quote further? What does that mean? Yeah, so I think um, if... If the amount of so, if we think about an operationally oriented team, um, that team is trying to accomplish some significant objectives, which is, you know, keep a service up, take backups of the service, uh, you know, mitigate failures that happen, um, you know, address user complaints of, you know incorrect data or slowness or whatever. We can all imagine, you know, the kinds of tasks that an operationally oriented group has. Um, Now, the number of people, if the scope of responsibility of that team is to respond to and mitigate specific problems, then what you will find is that over time, as, as the service gets more complex, or as more people start to use the service, the number of people you need to respond to problem reports goes up proportional to the size of the service. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, so I was going to say the next quote that I wanted to talk about um, to to contrast with how things might work at Google. Werner Vogels, who is the CTO of Amazon, he once said, "If you build a service, you run the service." And when we you know, when we're talking about SRE, it sounds like this role that is kind of responsible for running the service. So it sounds like that kind of contrasts with the Amazon way of doing things, perhaps where the team that builds the service runs the service. So could you t- could you touch on how that works at Google? I guess what is the interaction between the software engineers who are building a service and the software engineers, the so- site reliability engineers who are maybe running the service or managing the service? 
Yeah, no, like that's a so so what Werner says at a- Amazon is exactly how we do things at Google initially, which is you know the default for every team that builds a externally facing service at Google is they build it and they run it, um, and it is the normal case that a team that builds any new service r- runs that service themselves for some period of time, even if they expect to get SRE support. So we should be clear that um, SREs are in relatively short supply at Google, um, and most teams don't have access to SRE support or don't have an SRE team engaging with them. And so most teams are simply kind of on their own running their service. Uh, and we're pretty cognizant of that in SRE. Uh, we, we really spend a lot of time trying to make services work well for all of the software engineering teams that don't have SRE support. But in the case where a team is Let's, let's take a case like Gmail or something. So when the Gmail service launched, you know, back in, it was well, on April Fool's Day, <laughs> they launched Gmail on April Fool's Day and people thought it was a joke for quite some time, actually, because it had a, a whopping gigabyte of, of uh, quota and nobody thought that anybody could actually do that. And, um, you know, Microsoft, Hotmail and Yahoo were freaking out and everybody thought it was just a joke. But the team that wrote Gmail, uh, they ran Gmail. Uh, certainly by themselves for a little while. Um, but as, as a service gains in priority and gains in importance, um, the objectives start to uh, get to the point where the software engineering organization chooses to invest more in reliability. Um, and so when they do that, one way they can do that is they actually pay themselves for SREs to work on their service. So uh, SRE is not funded centrally where we are uh, basically employed by the software engineering organizations that decide that they're going to get more bang for their buck uh, from adding an SRE team rather than adding another software development team. So I want to start talking about the the more uh, tangible responsibilities of an SRE. And one, one responsibility of an SRE is to ensure that a service stays available. Let's talk about that term. What does it mean for a service to be available? Yeah, so I think um, to talk about that, we should talk about you know SLAs, SLIs, and SLOs. The Perfect. Dreaded words of reliability, but the stuff. I mean, people, you know, people's eyes glaze over. But uh, I get excited about this stuff. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm gonna just say it. Um, so let me introduce some terminology, and we can talk about how we use this. So. Uh, an SLI, a service level indicator, is anything you can measure that you think is correlated with what you're trying to do. So if your service is you know, sending chats, uh, then a service level indicator would be you know, number of chats successfully received and number of chat messages successfully sent. Or your service level indicator could be number of errors per chat message or any, anything you can measure that you think is correlated with what you're trying to do. Um, An SLO is a service level objective. It's what you think is reasonably achievable and is commercially viable for your service. And this, again, depends on the service. I mean, it's completely reasonable. As we've said before, we don't fetishize reliability. It's not something – it sounds weird to say because, you know, you're sitting here, you're talking to me, and I have reliability in my job title. So I should be (laughs) the one who wants the most of it whatsoever. But we just want we want the right amount of reliability. We don't too much is actually not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so if you say like I have a system that plays videos of cats on skateboards, well, how important is it that people every single time they go to look at the video of the cat on a skateboard, they get the right video mm-hmm. and they get it to play without stuttering it? It's not unimportant, right? And, th- and this is talking about YouTube, obviously. It's a joke about YouTube in the early days. But YouTube in the early days didn't have stellar reliability, right? It didn't need to because it was it was entertainment. It was enjoyable, but it wasn't mission critical for anyone. Um, and it was fun. And the users were completely tolerant of occasional outages during upgrades or during, you know, systems events um, because they were – it was fine, right? It just wasn't a problem. Now, if you look at the YouTube platform and what people are using it for, they're using it for live streaming of, you know, uh, Obama is going to live stream a session on YouTube. Well, you don't want it to go down then, right? Or people pay for 
movies and they want to watch the movie at home on their television with their kids, that's not a great time for a system maintenance, right? Like this is a thing. Somebody just gave you money to watch a movie. So then things change, right? So even within a service, those can change. So when so when we say like the system should be available, what that means is that the system should meet its availability service level objective. And the service level objective uh, really depends upon uh, the owner of the product, what they think that product's for. And, and different products have different objectives at different times. So is the SLO, is that kind of an abstraction that is uh, built on top of the SLIs? Yeah, it's basically a target uh, okay. for the SLI. And the reason we say objective rather than people are more familiar with the industry terminology of SLA, right? The service level uh, um, agreement. Agreement. But in, in this case, uh, like there's no one to make an agreement with. Like we are, we do have external SLAs, right? For products that people pay money for, there will be an SLA. Ah. But internally, between services, we have service level objectives. Um, and so many, you know, going back to your point about microservices and microservice architectures, almost every service that we have is dependent upon several and possibly dozens of other services inside of Google. So it's very important for us to know what can we expect from the other services. So I know that Google is a very quantitative organization and the the term SLO or you know especially if we're talking about SLAs these are things that you do want to be able to quantify you want to quantify like what is you know how how much availability are we targeting for the year and like you said 100% is not necessarily the target for availability because you might get to 99.99% and then getting like the the fifth nine is is exponentially more difficult than uh, than the previous nines, and it might be just not worth it at all. But I, I'm kind of curious how you get to a quantification of things that may be fuzzier. So, for example, you know, you can have partial failures. You could have like, oh, our system is 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 getting there. It's doing what it needs to do, but it's doing it over a, a longer latency than is tolerable. Um, and it does this for you know three hours a year or 10 hours a year, and then it's slightly more performant for another 15 hours a year, it's slightly more performant for, for, for 30 hours a year. And then there's also the types of scenarios where it's like, you know, you mentioned that the YouTube scenario, like how important is it to get a cat on a skateboard? Well, what if like the cat on a skateboard uh, videos are unavailable, but you can get cats on rollerblades? Like, is that partial availability? So I guess what I'm curious is like, how do you get the how do you how do you turn these fuzzier things into more concrete metrics yeah so so the question then is uh is how do you how do you decompose or how do you formulate an objective for a service uh out of all of these things that you could measure Mm -hmm. Um, i think there's two interesting problems one is you often can't measure what you actually want to measure. And the second is, what do you want to achieve in the first place? So let's talk about the second one first. The second one isn't, it sounds funny, but the second one isn't really an SRE responsibility. It's really a product owner's responsibility. Mm. If you tell me, so let's, so one of the, some of the systems that I've worked on are payment systems. And, um, you know, the tap and pay, the Android tap and pay service, for example, right? Android pay, you can walk around, you can buy things on your phone. So the question is, how fast does that need to work? And the answer from my perspective is, I don't actually know. That's a question about what consumers want and what consumers expect and what businesses, like what retail owners want and what retail owners expect. Um, if the comparison is, to a physical credit card, then the answer is, you know, ah, it's got to work really fast, right? Like the whole thing end to end has to happen in a couple seconds, three seconds, maybe. Um, but these days, as we switch to chip and signature cards in the US, the chip and signature cards are taking 12, 13, 15 seconds at checkout. And so now you say like, oh man, if you took five seconds uh, to clear a transaction on your phone, it's still so much massively faster. Consumers will love it. So to my mind, any of those objectives is achievable, 
Um, but they, but you have to decide what you need to achieve before you can figure out how much engineering time and how much budget to spend to achieve it. So that's the, the, the second part of that is what you, the definition of the product is the thing that will define how it should work. You know, so in examples you gave, um, can, can I give you an alternate version of the service you're asking for? Well, it depends on the, like, yeah, it depends on the service you're asking for. You'll see, for example, if you have a terrible network connection, I mean, really, really bad, like you're traveling and the hotel network is congested or something. Um, and you try to load Gmail. If it times out too much, it will offer to let you load a static HTML version of Gmail. Have you ever seen that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, right. So that's a great example of exactly what you're talking about. That's someone in the product definition said, hey, look, the definition of this product is that the single most important thing people need to be able to do is in some way read the email that they've received and compose and send new email. That's what people need to do. And if people have an ugly, clunky interface for doing that, that feels like it's 2004, that is way better than nothing at all. Right. And you can say, great, then we can do that. We can do that in a small web page that's kind of clunky and kind of ugly, but definitely works and has your email in it. Whereas, you know, someone else might say the only point of this thing is to look fast and look beautiful. And if you can't look fast and beautiful and be, you know, fantastic, then you should just not even bother. And you're like, okay, well, that's a different product. And that's a def that's a question of what you're trying to build. But then the first point I was making, which is the really, I mean, the, the, the product part is not my responsibility. But the how do you measure it part is definitely, and we spend a huge amount of time on this because it's often the case that the thing you want to measure, there's no good way to measure it directly. So, um, you know, I'll give, if you have a, a transaction processing system and that transaction processing system involves receiving a payment request from a user with some sort of form of payment, logging that, trying to process that, bringing it back to the user saying, wait, we need some more information. You go through several steps through several different systems. At the end, if you monitor each one of those systems and you don't have it like plumbed all the way through end to end, it's very difficult to figure out what percentage of users are satisfied and happy with the service that they got because of the way you've distributed the computation across all of these different components. So here's where the microservices architecture really can get in the way of making it easy to monitor your quality and monitor your availability. But that's what we spend a lot of time on. What are creative ways that we can find service level indicators, SLIs, that really correlate well with the thing you care about, which is user satisfaction? Hmm. So Many times the success rate at like if if a service level objective has been met or not that that can be determined over a long time horizon like a year like did we maintain uptime over this 6 month period or 12 month period this the did we maintain the amount of uptime that we established with our SLO or with our SLA yeah and, sure and and so the you know that when you're looking backwards oftentimes the the spans of time where where the overall uh SLO was met or was not met that is negatively impacted by these emergencies that occur where like there is significant downtime like you get downtime for like you know 6 hours or like you know search goes down for 12 hours so these emergencies are a big deal. And if an emergency occurs, a site reliability engineer is often at the front lines of responding to that emergency. So could you describe a typical type of emergency scenario and how an SRE would respond to that? Yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking about this. It's one of the, it's one of the first class skills that we have. Um, in in the SRE organization, and I, I think this is a this is something that we share absolutely with uh, with you know other DevOps uh, operations uh, and other production engineer staff around the world that 
we are the people who don't dislike emergencies. Sometimes we like them too much. But um, yeah, so we've spent a lot of time at Google really thinking about these. And uh, we generally call them incidents. Uh, an incident is anything that involves you know, the need to coordinate among multiple groups to solve a problem or something that impacts a large number of customers. And so uh, we have spent quite a bit of time on incident management training and we've built some tools, not surprisingly, right? We've talked about uh, SREs or uh, we're big on building tools and automating these processes. So we've built tools to handle coordination and communication in incidents. Um, one of the things that is challenging at Google, and this is actually challenging even at much smaller scales, is it's often difficult to figure out when something's broken um, who's doing what? Like, what do we know? Just establishing, and the military talk a lot about this as well. When something's going wrong, establishing what do we actually know and separating the rumor from the fact. And then who's who is currently changing the state of the system uh, and in what way? So th those are two things that are super important to get early on. And so we have a model where um, in the incident management at Google system where we have an incident commander you know, this is adopted from the nuclear industry, but there's someone who's responsible for coordinating the whole incident. Um, they, if it's a very large scale incident that's impacting millions of Google customers or lots of different and diverse internal services, we may have, you know, someone who knows nothing in particular about that service, but is their job is to simply identify technical experts in each of the areas, identify PR or management or financial experts in those areas, and then dispatch uh, requests for information or uh, status updates or, uh, you know, coordinate by providing additional resources to people. So, um, this is a, it is, as you say, uh, you know, individual outages of services for short periods of time can blow your SLA for a very long period of time. So it's important to resolve those quickly. Um, but it's often not the case that like, if you work as hard as you can, as frenetically as you can, you'll resolve it more quickly. The first thing you have to do is relax, clear your head and sort of engage your brain without panicking. So Douglas Adams was right. Do not panic. <laughs> Do not panic. The, the the SRE book also talks about the importance of a playbook for emergency responses. How do you write a playbook? So in some ways, like a playbook, uh, sometimes people call them run books. Um, they're, they're, you know, good for telling you the standard troubleshooting steps for any individual small scale or large scale outage. So in general, the recipe, the meta recipe that we go through for each team and each service is you just go through the alerts that you configure for a service. You may have a few hundred different ways that a service could page you or could alert you as to some kind of failure. And for each of those, you decide whether it needs a separate playbook or whether it can simply follow along, you know, one shared playbook. So there may be a family of alerts like, you know, X too slow alerts where you're like, look, here's 50 things that could be too slow, that the response time for it is slower than you expect. And here's like two or three different playbook entries that describe how important that is and how to troubleshoot it and what kinds of mitigation steps you can take. In our playbook entries, the two most important things are not what to do about it at all. Like you would think like how to fix it would be the most important thing. And that's usually in there. But the most important thing is uh, something that gives you some information about how serious the alert is. So some alerts are, you know, they indicate a problem, but it's not a critical problem and it's probably not user visible. And some other alerts mean like something is catastrophically wrong. And if you're new to the service or you're not super well informed about it, you really might need some information about just how serious the alert is. So that's the most important thing. And then the next most important thing is when should you call for help? So, uh, you know, if you're, again, newly on call for a service or newly working on a service and you get an alert that says, you know, uh, uh, user lookup too slow, <laughs> you're like, well, I don't know. Like, what? Like, okay, user lookup slow. What is that? And it, like, it could mean anything. It could mean your service is trying to log something. And when it logs something, it needs to look up 
what the take an ID and turn it into a username to put it in the log, and that's taking too long. That's not a big deal, right? It means your tasks are running a little bit more slowly or with a little bit more RAM, but it's no big deal. On the other hand, like this could be a call that your application makes every single time somebody tries to use it. And it could mean like this is a sort of catastrophically user visible problem, and all you get is the alert user lookup too slow, right? So in that case, the playbook entry would say, you know, this is normally caused by, you know, connections to our user lookup service being congested or unreliable. Look in this, this, and this place to determine if that's true. If this is true, escalate to this page or rotation or these people or this service immediately because this is a huge problem. Or it could say, yeah, this is probably no big deal. Keep an eye on it and do these following three things and log a bug and then fix it the next business day. Mm. Yeah, I, I did a show with somebody about Kubernetes, I think, and I think he mentioned that one principle that Google tries to maintain around failures and emergencies is that they're inevitable, but what you really want to avoid is having the same emergency twice. And it sounds like the playbook is really a great way of of update, of, of, of learning, of systematically learning from emergencies and problems and outages and updating this playbook so that, that the response time to each subsequent emergency of the same type is, is faster. Yeah, it, it could be, but there's a flip side of that. And this, uh, let me highlight, this is now we're into the part where, you know, Todd Underwood's opinion might stray from many of his <laughs> colleagues and I'll get hate mail if anybody actually, you know, notices that I said this. So I'm glad we buried this right in the middle of this so nobody will hear it. But so um, I think that's true. But if you think about what you just said, there is a problem, which is the playbook tells you how to manually handle things more quickly that have already happened in the past, which I agree. And so my point would be, well, then why can't we just automatically handle those? Mm. Like the playbook is a whole set of targets for system improvements. If you manually follow a relatively carefully described set of steps to handle some alert or some escalation or some problem with the system, well, we should just have the computer do that. So to my mind, playbooks are as much a collection of, you know, a current set of failures to automate as they are a collection of best practices for emergency response. Mm. Okay. So as we talk about that automation, um, we should talk a little bit about Borg. So Google's data centers are run using Borg, which is this container management system, this distributed operating system, uh, distributed operating system across data centers. We've done a couple shows about Borg. As a site reliability engineer, how much do you have to know about Borg? You have to know a lot about Borg. Um, one way we uh, occasionally describe ourselves internally as, you know, you used to have sort of, you know, applications administrators. You would say, you know, I'm an Oracle applications administrator. I'm an EJB applications administrator. And in some senses, SREs are really Borg applications administrators. We rely upon it. Uh, we have to know it's quirks and its various problems and its advantages. Um, there's a characteristic, as, as with any sort of software, there's a characteristic set of failure modes or rough edges or things that work well or things that don't. And it is also this very, very alive ecosystem. It's this you know living, breathing thing that changes with the way we use it. So you know there can be things that work perfectly well you know, sometimes, but if too many people try to use the same set of resources in the same way, it gets a little bit wonky or a little bit strange. So, yeah, we 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 live and breathe on Borg uh, for most teams. Now, there's a whole collection of teams who are now uh, building and deploying applications on GCP, the Google Cloud platform. Um, and so that's another set of challenges for us is basically – learning the uh, the vagaries and the you know vicissitudes of a whole other cluster operating system because GCP is really like the uh, Google compute engine is just a very different environment than Borg. Hmm. So are you saying that there are people internally who are deploying applications to GCP? Yep, absolutely. Is it's that a, uh, sir go ahead. 
No, no, it's 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 absolutely a priority for us. This is a thing that uh, we are in the process of spending a modest amount of time on. Um, we we don't think it is reasonable to be selling this cloud platform and not taking it seriously for internal use. So there's a whole set of projects. It, to move things to GCP. It is not the case that every application we have is going to be on GCP on any fixed timeline, but it's definitely true that we're evaluating it for a bunch of internal and some external applications. So when you're running applications on GCP, are you using... So Kubernetes, for those who don't know, is this externalized version of Borg, this open source version of Borg. That's, it's very similar to Borg, not completely similar, but when you deploy stuff to GCP, are you running it on Kubernetes or are you running it on Borg? No, we are not running it on Borg. We are running it on, you know, GCP native uh, primitive. So that includes, you know, Kubernetes management system. Interesting. So how, I mean, that's, that's, that's total news to me. How different is Kubernetes from the internal Borg system? I, I think it's, you know, the... There's two different things to think about in terms of GCP versus Borg that we think a lot about. Um, you know, one is the management system, just like the you know people people in the outside world have been managing VMs for a long time, and we don't we don't think very much of VMs. We we don't use them that much. They're just kind of a clunky abstraction. Um, they've become very popular because of how clean they are and the kind of security interfaces and properties that they have, which are good. They're not perfect, but they're good. But containers are really much more flexible in lots of ways, right? And it gives you a nice way of bundling the code that you need to run, uh, you know, with the data that you need to run in a much more concise way than you would have with a VM. Um, and so the VM management uh, for or the container management on GCP versus you know application management on Borg are fairly different. The abstractions are very different. I mean, if you've talked about Borg at all, you'll know that like the main way you think about building an application on Borg is you think about a job and the job having tasks. Um, and so that's not though that is and you don't actually think very much about the container that you're in the container that you're in isn't um it is addressable and you can you know configure things about it but it's not the primary abstraction that you think about when you're making a distributed application on borg and obviously it is when you're thinking about gcp um so i, I think that the bigger change though is just the software infrastructure that you know we have been doing things internally on Borg for a very long time and there's very very rich and incredibly complex I'll say software available to do just about anything in fact within the software that we have available for Borg there's probably 10 or 20 ways to do everything which is part of the problem <laughs> so I think um, you know GCP is a much uh, more, it's a much newer environment, which means it's cleaner in some ways. It's recently implemented, but it also means it's very stripped down. It's very like there's not, there are not, you know, 25 different string handling libraries ready for you to use at the drop of a hat. Um, and there's not a million different structured storage systems to use. There's, there's just a few. Now, the few that exist are actually really good, but it's taking us quite a bit of time, I think, to you know, figure out what are the best applications that we want to deploy there. Hmm. Well, so as much as I'd love to talk about GCP, we're running up against time. So I should, I guess, you know, kind of begin to wrap up the conversation by discussing more uh, SRE-related things. So I guess I want to ask, is the SRE mentality possible to adopt by any organization, even one that is does not have the scale and the infrastructure of Google? Yeah, this is something I've been spending a lot of time over the last two years thinking about. Um, I think it's a really important question to think about because um, – I think that when you look at when you look at the advantages that the SRE organization and approach have given Google, they are profound. And we would love for other organizations to to have some of those advantages. Um, but we sometimes get feedback that says, oh, that only works at Google because. And because, you know, ranges from a bunch of different reasons, but one of them is sort of size and scale, and some of them are organizational culture. But I guess, I mean, just to cut to the chase, I think the answer is yes. I think that um, other organizations can directly benefit from many of the approaches that we take in SRE 
Um, and I'm working on thinking through sort of concisely how to do that. But one of the things that leads me to believe that is um, we have a program where we where we bring software engineers who are not SREs into the SRE organization to work temporarily and acquire a set of skills and get a perspective as SREs. And what we find with that is that they're all completely able to do the job and some of them don't love the job and some of them do love it, but they're all completely able to adopt our perspective and our values and our approaches. Um, and many of them find that they're actually really good at the work and some of them find they like it so much they want to stay in SRE and we, we usually find good places for them to be. Um, and so what that means is that I think any organization with software engineers can probably just pick a few of those software engineers and wave a magic wand and say, Hey, Hey, for right now, you guys are SREs. Like, you know, why don't you three go off and like work, not on shipping the new feature, but work on making the service work so well that we stop having to spend time keeping it up and making it run. Um, and as soon as you allocate someone's time to that, you'll find that some people really enjoy that work and are able to be incredibly effective at it. So if there are a lot of companies out there listening who, you know, are, maybe they've like adopted devops and they are in they have these few things that devops you know tend to have i don't know infrastructure as code and microservices and uh this nice harmonious relationship between dev and ops what are the tweaks that that kind of organization would perhaps want to make in order to better adopt the sre mentality I think uh, I think the DevOps approach uh, in general, from what I've seen, is a really nice uh, movement towards uh, in the right direction. Like I really I really appreciate it. Um, I think adopting the perspective that operations, where operations is repetitive manual work that needs to be done of a high quality operations should be eliminated and should be eliminatable. And the people who should do it should be engineers who are familiar with the services whose operations they're trying to eliminate. And so I think that, um, breaking down even further the barrier between ops and dev. So instead of just saying, you know, instead of saying there's an ops team, but they're DevOps, so they do some software development and they work closely with the development team, say, we're going to merge the dev and the ops teams, shuffle everyone around, and then we're going to pick a few people, some of whom used to be developers and some of whom used to be operations staff, and we're going to make them responsible for reliability, and they will have scope over both the like deployment infrastructure, but also the software the code itself, right? So they will be able to fix bugs in the software rather than work around those bugs in the production environment. Mm. Okay, so final question. So there's a quote that's a traditional SRE saying that is, hope is not a strategy. Could you, I guess, conclude by explaining what this means and why it's important to the philosophy of an SRE? <sighs> I think this, yeah, we love that quote. It really is a motto that, you know, sometimes you see people say this is our motto and nobody knows what it is. No, we like, I will on a weekly basis have one of my coworkers saying hope is not a strategy. It's something we actually really take seriously. Uh, this goes back to the point that I was making earlier about constructive cynicism. Uh, so you can't, you can't just say, my thing's going to break. I hope it doesn't, right? The software is kind of buggy here. I hope, I hope that bug isn't triggered in production because what happens at Google and what happens in a lot of places is once you get to a certain scale, of course it's going to break. And so you're, you're hoping that it won't break is not a strategy and it doesn't count. And so that's meant as a prompt to us to say, okay, assuming it will break, what is your strategy for mitigating that failure? What is your strategy for fixing that bug? What is the best you can do between now and when the next failure is going to get you? And that's, that's what we mean by that. Cool. Well, Todd, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. Uh, I really appreciate talking to you about site, uh, site reliability engineering. Thanks so much. Yeah, uh, for people who want to know more, the book, uh, we really worked our hearts out to uh, publish the book. So um, we've had good response, and I, uh, I hope people are able to uh, get a copy of it. Great. Okay, well, thanks, Todd. Awesome. Thanks so much.